All right, so we are recording, and it looks like we got a Dr. Coons here. You got a voice? Yep. How's He's it going? He's got a voice. It's It may be going okay, but we're, we're going to dig right in here. Brief history of power to white guys, Dr. Adam Coons, Reverend Jonathan Fisk. He's a, he's a rev, too, which is actually the higher calling, although not in the secular world. Um, <laughs> but, hey, so, like, we got these, like, keto semi-plantain or some sort of root replacement for tortilla chip. And I ate a whole bag yesterday. I've also got a sore back from snow shoveling two weeks ago. And so I haven't been sleeping really the last couple of weeks. So today's show is like all on you, dude. Like I'm going to stand here and not make any sense. And you're going to tell us about important things. And then maybe we'll get to my weird question about the United States being a platonic state and what your thoughts are on that. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, today we're going to move from some, some basic optimism in the idea that making distinctions allows you to see common sense or clarity around you. Right. And yep. then from that, you can build upon evident frameworks in your life, like your family, that are there in nature to well make a better world than the one you see right now, usually. Huh? Right. And we're starting at that basic optimism because we're talking about something that sounds kind of wholesome and easy to talk about and kind of warm and friendly. And that's the word family and the idea of family. But we're going to talk about some things that are what would be called sensitive, not in, not in the sense of being politically explosive, but in the sense of being personal and kind of impinging and making claims on the listener. And the episode on education, I know, did that, but a lot of that was sort of unknown territory. Some of the things that we're talking about today are not so much unknown as unexplored. And that means that you've thought about it before, or it might have occurred to you, but you haven't been given the words or the framework for thinking about it that perhaps uh, we'll provide today. So we're starting with the basic idea of categorical thinking and why it's actually good. And the biggest problem that we have in thinking about the family, as in a lot of things that have changed radically in the past 50 years in the United States, is that categorical thinking is one of the things that's been off limits. Right. So as I wrote down, like you, you started by talking about family being a warm term, mm-hmm. um, semantically, it, it has a soft feel to it. Right. But it's also a word that doesn't have a lot of meaning. It's pretty vacuous. <laughs> right. And, yeah. Yeah. And the same is true for the word child, I find. And I think the same is true for the word, word friend. And I don't know if there's a connection to that, but I do think that gives us yeah. a nice place to start talking about the very yeah. idea. Here are yeah. some categories. What are right. they? Family, child, friend. What's the distinction? You know, what does it really mean? Well, and that and that is a great point because it's one of these things where the word family especially has been massively inflated. So there are some words that you can tell they're just trying to get rid of. So in what would have seemed parody five years ago, you know, Britain is now debating somewhat seriously in the National Health Service whether to get rid of the word breastfeeding because it is transphobic and to talk about chest feeding instead. And that sounds stupid, but I mean, they're taking their own ideology seriously. Are they taking the pharmaceuticals in order so that they cannot have normal chests? I mean, isn't, I'm sorry. I've I've lost the ability to follow at this point. That's why we've started, we started all this discussion this month. That's why we started with the concept of nature, because I think the basic rejection and the basic opposition to categorical definition of anything is because nature is presumed to be just off limits. And if it's off limits, then I can redefine whatever I want. 
I just need the energy and the time. I mentioned an energy there, I think is kind of key. I, I, yeah. I, I honestly believe Einstein is connected to this conversation, but let's keep it just strictly okay. philosophical yeah. for the moment. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Why is nature off limits? What do you mean when you say that? Nature is off limits because nature, if I let it just be, is going to reveal certain hard and fast realities within any species to me. So it's going to reveal to me that a certain kind of deer gives birth and another kind of deer grows antlers and impregnates the kind of deer that gives birth. Now, then I can come up with the terms male and female and I can have them be species specific and talk about does and bucks. But it, if I just observe what's going on, certain patterns, really predictable, as long as I learn to identify them, patterns are going to be revealed to me. And what's off limits, even within just sort of the, the ecology of people's minds, is access to those patterns. So you probably know dozens or hundreds of corporate logos at a glance. It could flash in front of you for a millisecond and you would know that's Nike or that's REI or that's whatever, right? You probably couldn't do that with 10 or 12 different kinds of trees that grow within a mile of where you're sitting or standing right now. Truth. Although I did see a cardinal today, I knew what it was. <laughs> there you go. Right. So yeah, you got to start somewhere, right? So if you need to know corporate bands, you got to start with, you know, start with Nike or start with Apple. If you need to know trees or birds or something, start with a cardinal, start with, you know, a really common kind of oh, oak or something. Good baseball teams too, you know, I, I mean, yeah. 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 So, uh, you know, Orioles, you Orioles, Blue Jays. That's yeah, all, that's where I'm at. There you go. Start with that. So nature is off limits, both in how you're educated, but also in the way that we're allowed to talk about things. Now, let, let me make sure I say this too. Then, so when you're saying that nature is off limits, you mean with regard to the regime and the, the way the regime wants yes. to think. Yes, right? exactly. You don't actually mean that nature is really off limits. In fact, it's right there. It's inside your door. No, nature is sitting right there, and nature is there even in the poor child who's being given puberty blockers so that he doesn't turn into too much of a boy before it's too late to make him into a girl. Hmm. The reason he has to take those drugs is because nature is so powerful within him that if it's not stopped, he will turn into a boy. He will turn into a man, in fact. So how does this work with science denying and mother nature yeah. and green and, yeah, yeah, and yeah. all that? Yeah, well, I think one thing to realize is that basically the way that green and science and nature are actually used rhetorically in our politics and our media is really just as a cudgel. They're not used in a serious way. No. So to give you an example, all of these sort of milk substitutes that are being promoted as better for you than cow's milk. And cow's milk is gradually like actual meat being stigmatized. Mm hmm. What's being what it's being replaced with are things that for sheer volume to get onto a shelf, whether almonds or oats or whatever is, quote, milk. Again, notice, too, that they'll use a natural word for something that is an un there is no milk coming out of the oat. Right? I've, eaten, I've eaten an almond before and it tastes good and there's, it's, it's greasy, oily right. a little bit as I chew it. I can almost see how you can maybe make butter out of it. Maybe. Yeah. But yeah, but milk. No. But not being a mammal, it's not yeah, producing milk. <laughs> right. Right. So even what they do produce <laughs> is like this, is this like white, yeah. juicy water 
former almond paste. It's more, it's more akin to coffee than to milk, I think. Yes, is where, yes, yeah, yes. It's almond coffee. And so what you can see is that for both advertising purposes, but also I think for purposes which are maybe a little bit darker, which we'll get into later with the notion of why they want to scramble things. Right. They will continue using a natural word, but the natural word is only used metaphorically. Right. And the natural, the natural or real or literal thing, milk from a mammal, milk from a cow, milk from an actual human mother to a human baby, you know, without qualification, those are all literally what we say they are. That can disappear. The metaphorical use can remain. And, and, and the reason for this, let's just do it now because we've got lots of other things to talk about. The reason for this is that, and, and Pastor Fisk and I both know this as people who basically talk and write for a living, is that when someone is subject to your rhetoric, if he doesn't have access to anything outside your rhetoric, you have a lot more control over him in every realm of his life starting with his thinking, starting with his feeling. You have a lot more control over him if he only knows the way that you define things Mm -hmm. rather than if he knows how you define things and also a basic reference to check how you define things. Right, counter-arguments and whatnot. So in theology, that would be, right, in theology, that would be the Bible, but in politics and in media and in everyday life, that's nature. And if I take nature away, but I keep the words and all you really know about with milk is, well, there's oat milk and cow milk and human milk and human milk can come from a man or a woman. It doesn't really matter. Then all you really know is how I define terms. And suddenly I have a, I have way more political because actual sort of spiritual control over you than if you know, well, cow's milk comes from a cow. Uh, An almond is not a mammal, so they can't have milk. So, you know, which sounds kind of dumb, but that's where you have to start to have any access to nature. I know that there are, you know, boy birds and girl birds, and they're not the same, and they don't look the same in any species. So I know that there's something to boys and girls, and they're different. Yeah, it's a weird catch-22 where the modern lie wants to have nature both be its source and the thing it's getting rid of at the same time. And so somehow it wants to supersede. It wants to right. be supernatural to the past. It wants to overcome the boundaries of nature. And yet right. it claims nature's power as its God for doing this. And that's where then I think the, the modern person who's just got some common sense watching realizes that nobody's actually, well, that's not true. Not as many people are actually worshiping yeah. nature as they think, as want to think they are. They're worshiping a lot of other stuff. But, you know, no, those no. who are out there really trying to save yeah, the trees are having a different conversation, right? There's no way that a cow, which is naturally producing so much milk every single day, is actually more harmful for the environment than the kind of industrialized agriculture necessary to produce oat milk. Right. Macro farming. So it, it, it is it is very much like the response to covid where we could have taken covid as a wake up call for the basic health of industrialized nations. And we could have said, hey, instead of confining ourselves in every realm of life and being subject to all kinds of constantly changing rules, depending on where you go and what you're doing, 
let's just all agree that we all have to go outside more often and lose weight. And then we'll be generally healthier. And then our respiratory health will be better. And we'll all agree to do Fitbit for, I mean, that would also be invasive, but you see how it would actually be more productive for right. the, right. the health of the general population than just making everyone breathe in microbes all the time inside a mask. So the, the solution that they go for with oat milk or impossible burgers or something is always going to be industrially intensive in a way that an actual natural solution like eating meat or drinking cow's milk is not is not intensive no. is not harmful is sustainable yeah the, the the carbon footprint of making your oat milk with fossil fuels is a real deal and it's it's uh, we say right. the cow is not right. more unnatural than macro farming. So when people complain, for the record, when people say it takes all this whatever to get meat to the table, so many acres and acres of whatever, that's if you're going to do strictly corn-fed macro cattle farming as opposed to family farms with a couple cows a year you know, on, on a significant portion of land where you're rotating different animals and different crops and everything to try to care of the land. And the science is there. The actual science is there yeah. for anybody who wants to do this. It's just not cost-effective to big companies. So you know, we deal with it what it is. But right. I, I just don't want to get that one thrown back at us. Like It's a joke. You can, you can make cows green you cannot do it with fields of a single crop that go blocks and blocks and blocks at a time that destroys habitats <laughs> right so sorry i had to throw that one in there this exactly. is my my my, exactly. my beef literally and so yeah no <laughs> so what 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 we're saying is that they do this with nature generally they do it with the family specifically so the way that they set this up with the family is the functioning and the reality of the literal family that is the father, the mother, and the children, the basic unit of human existence, maybe including a generation or two prior to the father and the mother, maybe including a generation or two after the father and the mother. But that basic unit, which you find in pretty much any human society, you know, housed in various ways, but existing in every human society, that is the basic unit that becomes optional, especially in the United States, roughly 50 years ago. Although I do have to say, and we can get into this some other day, people are worrying about the American family and its continued existence as early as the 1920s. So kind of systematic concern about the continued existence and the flourishing of the American family really comes after women get the vote. I remember reading a book, a part of a book called American Way by Alan Carlson, where he talked about mm -hmm. even Teddy Roosevelt was an activist for uh, child rearing family existence because it, at his time he even saw some problems. Post 1970s United States, even though there were echoes yeah. before that, post 1970s, yeah. you really see the assumption being that I will not live with my family when I grow up, meaning a generational uh, town. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily the same house, right, yeah. or even same block, but Sunday dinners kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think there, there's all kinds of facets of this where the literal family becomes optional just the, because what, what kind of expands and inflates is the metaphorical definition of family. So family is the people that you do CrossFit with family is the people that you do, you know, travel hockey with family is the people that you work with or whatever. And maybe you spend all your time at work, like on you know, the campus of a Silicon Valley company. So family metaphorically can expand. Our church body has been completely 
guilty of this, by the way. I mean, the, 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 what do you call it? The limp wristed. We're all a family here at church. Let's all hug yeah. Pastor Bob. <laughs> it, it's the same thing, though, right? It, it actually demeans uh, the word yeah. family. I think that's why most yeah, people are like, why are you saying this? Yeah. This is a lie. Right. right. Because the literal family is actually what, according to nature, really isn't optional in the sense that I need a father, I need a mother to exist. And then normally in any human society, they're going to raise me. And it's that literal family that becomes flexible. And the undergirding of that, I think, already begins with the notion of the family not being locally supported and locally sustained, often in a congregation. But also this is why things like the Masonic Lodge flourished in you know, late 19th century America is not to replace the family, but to bolster the family. So if the father becomes disabled through work or something, he's going to be supported by the union but it doesn't replace the family. What you get is a combination from the 1920s onward of both legal loosening of the family. So you go from, you can only get a divorce in any way easily if you go to Nevada to eventually you can get a no fault divorce practically anywhere. Yeah, everyone was jealous of the extra money they're getting at those late night chapels and uh, <laughs> made divorce law go across the country. Yeah. Couldn't just leave at one state. It would have worked fine right. in one state. A little effort, take a little effort. Right. Yeah, and and so and so divorce law spreads yeah. really in, in in the same way that gambling spreads in the United States, where the state recognizes that not only does it get money from those kinds of transactions. And also divorce lawyers get money from those transactions, but also that when you have people thinking of the family as legally optional, so this is even kind of, this is kind of separate from, okay, well, what were churches saying about the family? That's kind of a, a separate but parallel thing. But when the family becomes legally optional, then the thing that can step in there really in place of the father is the state. Mm -hmm. It must. So this happens really in two major realms. One is you move from the doctrine of the common law, which we've talked about on previous shows, the doctrine of the common law that the Englishman's home is his castle. And what that means, and, and you still get this in certain, especially self-defense laws in various states, but probably not in your state, for instance, is the idea that if you get on my property or you get near my family, I can repulse you even with the power of lethal force. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because as the father of the family, my, my, I am the person that protects my family. Full stop. Now, there are other authorities that, again, assist me in that, right? But in, in common law, that's really just the sheriff historically. So, I mean, he can help. But finally, the responsibility lies with me. Right. So there's both defense, but then there's also economics. And economically, it's also on me. And there are people that can help. And historically, the churches, especially whether in the state church in England or local congregations of different kinds in America, they can help. But it's not their responsibility, finally. It's mine. You move from that model where both defense and also economics are in the hands of the household and especially the head of the household to a model where those things are both ultimately, and let's even say, even with reference to education, going back to the last episode, education and force and economics are all finally in the hands of the state. 
And that doesn't all happen at the same time. And it doesn't happen at the same rate everywhere in the United States. But it finally happens where we talked about education last time, but also the growth of policing and the militarized nature of policing, as well as the growth of the welfare state and the extent of the welfare state. And now at this point, the reason that a woman can have a child from an anonymous sperm donor is because it's legal. But the reason that that child can be supported and protected and taken through life is because she literally economically and militarily, let's say, doesn't need a man because the state is her husband. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different stuff in there. So picking one direction to go uh, yeah. is tough here. I want to get to the idea of uh, just where you finished, I guess. I'm going to go on to a woman with a child not in the United States in this world right now may yeah. or may not be safe. Right. There, there are places yeah. where nature yeah, still right. holds sway. And so I guess this is this is my, right. my earlier question that I wanted to congeal more. Is it not what the state must do eventually? Is is not the American, well, the platonic dream uh, of the American Republic? Is it not at the end of the day a story that talks people out of killing each other for a couple hundred years, but not actually a solution to the problem of human humanity's need to just kind of self-destruct. And frankly, if I look at it that way, the current government, while I think they're evil, they're doing a pretty good job of keeping us from still actually killing each other. Like no one in my neighborhood shooting yet. Like that's still there, right? Like I don't have to worry <laughs> about the Philistines coming over the hill and taking okay, away my yeah. cows at the moment. Right. Yeah. Now okay. I'm not sure that's there 10 years from now. I right. don't know. I really don't know. Right. But right. at the moment, again, Go back to this, like, it's a story here, right? We're, we're working yeah. with a story that's trying to keep us from killing each other. Um, yeah. And what we're seeing is no matter what you do, there's going to be groups and corners that kill each other. And that, that's what I want to deal with, is that. Well, I, I think that the problem is that almost no government and very few people's historical experience on any kind of regular basis is built to handle or even can cope with the fact of familial collapse. Huh. Be, yeah. Be, and so it's not really built to deal with that. Now, Plato is different because he's kind of imagining from the ground up. Mm. And Plato actually imagines a commonwealth where the family is not is, is really not doing the things that I'm saying it's natural to do. Plato appeals to nature, but does not use it exclusively as a guide. And that has to do with a lot of stuff we don't need to get into sure, just sure, sure, sure. specific to him. But the, but the issue is that, for instance, the American Republic, however, however many configurations of that you think we're on, I'm saying we're on the fourth or fifth Republic. Right, right. We're very different, but not even the New Deal, which is, I think, determinative for the shape of the welfare state and the fact that the state can be your husband if you don't happen to have one now. That is not even wasn't even built, at least, to deal with familial collapse. So this is something that if you think about uh, Black Americans or Appalachia or lots of different regions of America, the death knell for them is the provision that the state has given to poor people in all kinds of ways since Lyndon Bain Johnson's Great Society in the 1960s. Hmm. The state at that point begins to replace way more than even the New Deal ever envisioned. And 
the the bane that that has become for a lot of those communities can really be summed up in the state replaces the family and the problem now you're saying yeah, the state ahead. replaces the father though because in most of these in most of these groups you have a mother and a child and i think that the uh they would say that this is the family right and so really i mean, I, I don't disagree i'm just saying it's, yeah, it's the father right. that's being replaced yeah yeah i think i think that what I'm doing is crossing over between the family is father plus mother plus children yeah, yeah, and the father because the father is the keystone there, but the father is the very one who in the modern American family is replaced. Mm -hmm. The mother is not replaced. And uh, even in transgenderism, <laughs> way more people want to become women than become men. And that that partly has to do with women are a protected class and men are not per se. Partly. So, yeah. So, <laughs> so, so even if you're black, it's better to be a black woman than a black man. Correct. So, so that's that the father is the one being replaced and the father is the one whose provision and protection and care and discipline are replaced by the state in any number of ways. So how did this happen with the sexual revolution? Because they weren't screaming yeah. about fathers then. They were just yelling other stuff or, you know, make love, not war and all that. Right. Mar Marcuse. Right. And a lot of people don't kind of know the the connecting chains here. So just a lot of these things are kind of worthy of their own show. But just to connect them briefly, you get a shift from, say, Teddy Ro Roosevelt's time where it's actually illegal to mail any information advising married couples about birth control. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. To, in 1965, the right to privacy, which is going to be the grounds for the ruling in Roe v. Wade that allows you mm -hmm. to kill your child in the womb. 1965 is Griswold v. Connecticut, which is about whether or not you can sell birth control products to married couples. Right, right. And so what you're getting is a nexus Right? You're getting you're getting a set of connections and then out of that set of connections are a variety of changes somewhat simultaneously. What gets remembered now as the sexual revolution, capital S, capital R, is not just about being able to sleep with whomever you want. It's also about how things that were both morally in people's minds, but also legally were connected now get disconnected. So if earlier you had to legally connect sex and marriage and provision and children and child rearing, now I can split those things up and I can pick and choose from that menu. So I can rear a child without, without actually having to have sexual activity that would produce a child. So now I can have gay parents or I can have sex, but not have to have children if I'm a woman because I can procure an abortion. Or I can have sex with someone of the opposite sex and even be married. But because of Griswold v. Connecticut, I can use birth control so I don't have to have children. So what really happens in the 1960s in what's called the sexual revolution is not just that people start sleeping around more or something or illegitimacy rates go up, which they do for all races in the United States. It's really that things that were once both morally by the churches and legally by the courts bound together now are unbundled and you can pick and choose from those options. So what seems to be most lost in this is not the value of a father to me, honestly, um, it's the value of a son. 
and and somehow in this it's the children who have been removed from the society's eyesight. So um, those who are most naturally born to care for the child take the least interest in many ways at this point. And again, that what does that mean or why? That's what religion seeks to answer. But, you know, how do we govern a society in which I found a proverb recently that said it this way. Um, a true friend is, is for life, I'm summarizing. Uh, a brother is born for adversity. Actually, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. that, that the brother's going to bring contention into life there, right? And so to, again, acknowledge that we're, when you're dealing with the governance of men, uh, you're dealing with the, the sword upon those who will not bow to it for various reasons. And if there's something that I would pin everything where, like, where the flipping point was, somewhere, not just mothers decided they didn't want sons, but fathers decided they didn't want sons. And that seems like a pretty big sociographic, you know, archetypical change in civilization there. You know, thousands of years of epoch. And we're just like, yeah, you know, a kid. Um, yeah, you hear me? I I do. And I, I, I agree that the thing that breaks down is the father-son relationship, which means that the thing that breaks down is the formation of manhood going into the future. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. On... On the other hand, the people who indubitably benefit the most, both economically and legally, in the options now available to them are women who want to have sex, but either don't want to remain married or ever get married to the fathers or don't want the children or don't want to keep the children. Right. So women women do benefit, and that is related to some of the financial stuff I'll talk about next week, because what they 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 don't benefit in happiness, right? You can look at statistics of especially middle-aged women in the modern United States, Mm -hmm. both the percentage of them on antidepressants and they are the demographic in whom alcoholism is rising precipitously, right? After having fallen for decades and decades, really across all demographics, alcoholism specifically, not drugs. Right. So what you're dealing with is what, what gets called women's liberation, but the question is what are they being liberated for? Mm -hmm. Because Politically, you should notice that in America, the easiest thing to do is to argue for negative freedoms, new negative freedoms. So a safe space for, you know, BIPOC means a a white free space. It's a space where you don't have to be with white people. Liberation for women means you don't have to be with men, at least not for life. But the question to ask yourself when you're thinking about negative freedoms I'm moving up the interstate to get away from the city, whatever is, what am I going to get after that? What am I, once I'm free of white people or free of men or free of the city, what am I going to actually do then? And one of the things that I think you notice about women's liberation slash the sexual revolution generally kind of tracked together as historical movements and narrated as good things is that you get an enormous growth in loneliness. And I don't think that's an accident because now we are all potentially just subjects of the state. There's nowhere that we naturally belong. I think that's why you get this inflation in the term family, even as the literal family collapses. And I think that you're totally right in the case of sons and also in the case of daughters, you're totally right to see that what happens with the sexual revolution is that children get left behind. Because once I divorce sex from marriage from children, adults will begin to act in their own self-interest. It's not really in their immediate self-interest or self-gratification to say, 
okay, I'm, I'm having sex right now. This is going to result in a 20 year long commitment. This single thing I'm doing right now. At this point, most people having the baby don't realize it's going to result in a, in a <laughs> big of a commitment. I'm <laughs> not kidding. Right. There's a certain yeah, right. level yeah. of, of, I would call it a you know, TV inspired. My life's a movie. Someone else will take care of it. A day by day hand to mouthism going on. And right. it leads to an object objectification of the other humans around you. They're just yeah. players in a, in a game or in an action that you're, you're a movie you're in. And your baby ends up being the same way for a lot of people. And this leads to horrible stories you do hear about yeah. on the news, honestly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> really. So right. Um, speaking of horrible stories that you hear about on the news, although no one thinks it's horrible. So why should nobody have been surprised about transgenderism? Let me tell you a story actually about this first. Yeah, right? go I, I this is this can't be more than seven years ago. It really can't be. I don't know. Things have changed so fast. But I was in Naperville. I was teaching at a big church and school. I was teaching fourth grade. I was teaching fifth grade. Yeah. I was teaching eighth grade. So theology going into different classrooms throughout the day. Yeah. And we had a sister congregation, same church body, um, both pro-life, both conservative, Bible believing. I end up as a teacher in a in a meeting with the principal, another pastor, another support person for me. And like Mm -hmm. eight parents from this other church, because I was telling the fourth graders about abortion and how it happens. They wanted me to stop. They want me to scare their kids. Mm -hmm. They they said, we don't want the first time they hear about abortion to be something that traumatizes them. They literally said that out loud. Yeah. I'm like, are you kidding me? What about murdering a baby should not traumatize your children and make them never want to do it? Yeah. What is going on here? So, but what I realized then again, they were also upset because I'd said something to the seventh and eighth grade class. I had said to them that before long, bestiality would be something people were advocating. They should watch out for it in college. Be careful. Don't get involved in that kind of stuff. And again, parents, why are you warning them against that? But right, right now, it's, who's laughing now? I'm not laughing. I'm not laughing. I didn't think it was funny then, right? Um, but I was watching. I was watching where are your yeah, kids now. Right. I don't know. I mean, a lot of those kids right. I know actually are not in church at all, and they're off doing the worldly thing. Is I went off to concentration camp and joined the joined the party, right? Yeah, yeah, so, they got reeducated. And literally, yeah. regime. Uh, right. But still, the point being, again, why should how how could one come to not be surprised by this? I agree okay. with you. We should not be surprised yeah, yeah, yeah. by most of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a there's a lot there's a lot of reasons that it it's like I can explain to myself why people are constantly surprised, but if they stopped for five seconds, they wouldn't be. Now, when gay marriage was still completely debatable everywhere in the United States, including like Hawaii and California and New York, Rick Santorum was laughed at for saying that this was going to lead to consideration of bestiality and pedophilia. Yeah. Right. Okay. Like, I think that was like 2004, maybe people were like, listen to this insane guy. And the problem is ever the only logical fallacy anyone's aware of is slippery slope. And I'm not even sure it's a fallacy. That's right. That's, right. That's good. I, I'm with you on that one too. <laughs> and so when you're thinking the reason that people are surprised is because people prefer to remain comfortably asleep. That, that is an easier way to go through life for most human beings. And I'm not faulting them for that. I think it just is probably everywhere. Most of the time. The problem with that is that you were not born into a time where being asleep is to your benefit or your children's benefit. And so once you realize that this is how things work, right? So first, you're going to be told in the early 1980s that, you know, the AIDS crisis is happening among gay men. 
then eventually you're going to be told that it happens to everybody. Then your kids are going to be told in like fifth grade how to put a condom on. Mm-hmm. Now they're going to have drag queen story hour today. So that's within my lifetime that that happened. And I'm not that old yet. So you, I can see a what, picture. There's no gray hair or nothing yet right. on this guy. <laughs> right. Not yeah, even. Exactly. exactly. I mean, and I'm 62. You know what I mean? So it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> so what you're dealing with is the recognition that they really don't change their strategy. It's just that their tactics change. And sometimes they move faster. Like in the last 10 years, they've moved a lot faster than they did between 1970 and 1990. Right, right. That's because I don't think it's a they. I think it's an idea and the idea is going to move as fast as information. I wish it was a they in charge. We're not that yeah, smart that's... as you pointed out before. I want to say, though, about the slippery slope. I, I haven't yeah. looked into it as a as a logical fallacy or not. But I'll tell you, far from slippery slope, it's about trajectory for me. You know, it's not about the slope being slippery. You might you're in a bad yeah. spot and you're running that direction. <laughs> yeah. Stop it. Yeah. yeah. There's a cliff. There's there's a difference between that and just assuming that, you know, I think I think the slippery slope fallacy is to recognize that there are two sides of many arguments. And yeah. uh if you go too far you can end up in another error. So right. I mean that that's fair. But right. the trajectory of the sexual revolution, as you point out, didn't even begin with Griswold versus it was it Connecticut? I can't remember. Now yeah, again. yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, but Margaret Sanger's work is going along before that. Al Kinsey's work is going along before that, right. uh, trying to make all these things happen. Again, is it just them? Are they just a political party doing this? Uh, you know, if you, if you don't have a Christian background, you know, however you want to mythologize it, uh, the way I see it again is that we are just we have a proclivity as humans for making the worst possible decisions based on what we perceive to be the best possible result for me personally at this moment. And we do it constantly, infinitely all day long around the planet. And it it builds up to stuff over time. (laughs) Right. And I, I, what I, the reason not to be surprised by transgenderism is because it captures two dynamics that really are contained within the label pro-choice. So that's usually applied just to the abortion debate. Yeah, yeah. But it has to do with two dynamics that go back to Kinsey on the basis of horrendous data, making certain assertions about American male sexuality. And he had predecessors in Weimar, Germany, which was which was a place in many ways a lot like modern America. <laughs> I had another one of those moments this yeah. morning. I'm on full on tangent dystopic horror here. Another one of those moments this morning where Man of the High Castle, I'm like, you know what? You know, I'm I'm not sure they didn't win and we just don't know it. How would I test this theory? And that was it. I stopped. I was praying. I'm like, how would I test yeah. I can't test it. Yeah. I honestly couldn't test it. It might be true. Given that, yeah. we are a reflection in so many ways of the thing we say we stopped in 1945. We say we stopped it. Uh, and we're doing all of it, you know? And yeah. I don't know. Uh, so forget, forget countries, nationalities, flags. I'm talking ideologies again, trajectories. And we haven't stopped. It's getting ugly. Well, I, I, like there's there's a connecting link here, for instance, in the thinker Theodore Adorno, who emigrates from Germany, comes to the United States in the 30s, occupies academic positions in the U.S. as he had in Germany. And he is one of the writers, along with Max Horkheimer, of a book that comes out and is very influential from the 1950s onward called The Authoritarian Personality. And what Hmm. he's trying to do is to say, well, how do we stop there from ever being a Nazi Germany ever again? And he says, well, look, the problem is, is in essentially the sort of normal Western nuclear family with a father at the head. Mm -hmm. And so he wants to get rid of any actual leader. That's right. Fuhrer, right? In the family, because because that will produce a certain kind of leadership politically on a macro scale 
And since we can't have that ever again, we have to destroy it in the family. Right, right. Now, the, the, the way that that's contained in pro-choice is that what you take, you, you, what you do is you take what appears natural and time-honored and you try to make it strange. That's what somebody like Kinsey's doing, who's saying, yeah, we're all probably homosexual, probably maybe even bisexual at least. Here's my data. Now, it's all horrible. It's a lie. But you take what seems natural, you make it strange, and you take what seems strange and you make it seem natural or normal or understandable, and you even make it braver or more moral than what used to right, seem natural. Right, 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 right. Yeah. You claim it's that way. You know, nothing like a utopian quixotic as opposed to an epic. We'll have a, we'll have a quixotic? Coyote? Is that how you say it? How do you say quixotic? Is it coyote? Yeah, quixotic, yeah. Is it quixotic? No, okay. no, no. You don't say it like, that's it. Yeah, we don't. We, I don't we even have know. Our English pronunciation. This is the problem with English. English is like it's, borrowing left and right and changing the rules in the middle. Like, what do you it's, do? It's nothing, quixotic. No worries. Nothing like a utopian quixotic to try to save the world after a really bad run-in with Hitler. Why don't we just assume that the way to make it never happen again is believing it's possible to make it never happen again and then go try as hard as we can with all the guns we got? You hear what I'm saying? Like, like yeah, it's I, the insanity of believing that the the solution to a bad monarch is to have everybody shooting at each other all the time. I mean, it's kind of what they're coming And You're going to dogpile it anyway, as you and I have talked about. You're going to just have people move off the stage. They're going to control from sure. behind the scenes because why would they put themselves in front? So I just – this Adoro guy, no, Ador, Adorno? Adorno, Adorno yeah. Adorno, mm-hmm. No doubt he's had some influence, but i got to call like foul on his game plan. Man. No yeah, way. I, 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 think, I think that – it also what what something like the authoritarian personality does is it says that if if you are living in a functional and you can see I mean you get the same dynamic with the term white privilege if you are living in a functional Western white which apparently as we learned recently includes Asian family with a father and a mother and everyone is apparently happy that's actually deeply horrible and twisted and authoritarian and destructive right. And what you need to do is have like a family where there are two moms and they're of different races. And then the kid is a third different race. So none of it was actually produced biologically. And it's actually impossible. It's it's like an impossible burger of a family. It can't be produced by nature. And because that family is actually aligned with the ideology of our regime and cannot produce any kind of authority that would defend itself. So understand this is that is that a family with a father has somebody who would defend it against authorities above it. A family that is a biological impossibility, doesn't have a father, for instance, cannot defend itself against the state. You see how much power they gain in destroying a natural family. Now, one of the arguments right now against the Second Amendment is that it's 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 a non-argument. They already we already can't defend against the state, as you pointed out. I can try to be my own tribe. We're effectively still uh, weakened by our deep independence from our neighbors mm-hmm. and those around yeah. us. Oh, I feel like I had a question to come out of that. Well, yeah. So so it's got to be about more than just defending per se it's about having mm-hmm. an attitude which would see evil as bad and good as good and pushing for that <laughs> right. in some way yeah and then as you point out they're trying to engender literally families which will not produce the ability to defend themselves which means that again for my part i'm less worried about them attacking me as about them getting attacked and then me being here when they're being attacked because I don't think ultimately they're going to have the capacity or the willpower to come after every corner of the planet, try to get us to not talk to them. 
I'll 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 go to their ghetto. That's fine. But it's when again they can't defend themselves. As you pointed out, our National Guard troops are out of shape. Um, I was just reading something. Uh, what, what book was this again? Oh, I picked up Ender's Game, and uh, it's great, great fiction novel. And uh, he's got Orson Cod has a little bit of a, an intro in it that I hadn't seen before, written in 1992, and he's got a letter in it from a uh, military personnel detailing the complete lack of infrastructure within our actual military, as opposed to say paid professional outside private military that they rely yeah. on. Nineties, nineties, yep. yep. <laughs> thirty years ago. So like yeah. we defend ourselves. Def- the, the Navy SEALs a myth. What, how many of these guys we got? Five hundred. 715,000 yeah. of them? I mean, what, what are we going to do? So again, I'm, I'm less worried about, uh, I know there's going to be thugs in the cities, right? And, and they're going to be after each other in a tribalism in some way. But again, if I'm thinking about my family and the government, I'm not worried about the government. I'm not worried about protecting myself from the government. I am worried about a government that can't protect itself and invites attack with me in the corner. Does that yeah. make sense again? I mean, yeah, call it, me nuts. It, it, it does. I, I, I do think our government is more malicious than that. However, well, that's good. You make me feel better. Yeah. (laughs) I think that they, if they, if they actually valued nature, they would support the natural family for existing per se. But that's an if that we don't have. Exactly. And so what you can tell is that they do not support the formation of families, they make the breakup of families relatively easy, and they make the constant redefinition of the family. It's gone. I mean, gay marriage was kind of one thing that was about like, who signs the marriage license, right? Like whose names can go on a marriage license together and be married. And that's probably still in process of redefinition. I mean, polygamy in, you know, Mormon heavy states has to be coming legally at some point because there really is no reason not to have yeah, it. Anymore. I don't think it'll, it'll, it doesn't even need Mormons. I have heard of other pagan groups that are doing it too. So yeah. polyamory, like legalized polyamory, intentional with co-ownership right. of stuff and blah, blah. In addition to that, however, in the, in the redefinition of male and female, this is why I see transgenderism as a very natural evolution of the sexual revolution, because once you have unbundled things that used to go together, so you said, well, there, there's two biological sexes and sex is the same thing as gender. And it happens naturally, biologically. And then you can join with this other sex in order to have a child. And then that produces a family and that all happens within marriage, et cetera, and so on. Once you've unbundled- to keep you apart when you're young to stop it from happening. Yeah, right. It's natural is once that's unbundled, you can then also redefine. Right. So if I say, well, you don't have to get a burger with fries. Well, now I can say, all right, well, I can make a lot of different kinds of burgers or I can put a lot of different kinds of things on fries. So let me give you those options, too. Like the idea that there are a bunch of genders, which people kind of just they scoff at. They act like it's like silly. I don't I don't know why they do that when they themselves have been unbundling sex Right. From procreation their whole life. Right. Generally speaking. Well, that, that hypocrisy has been one that you and I have talked about years yeah. ago, I believe. Right. And we recognize that in our body as well, it's a it's a done deal. Like that was a conversation right. had a generation before us and they told us right. to shut up and don't ask questions about it, even though right. it's a complete change from everything that which came before. But right. you, you look at it and you're like, how can you possibly sit there and call yourself pro-life when you're not? Right. You know, when you're not, when you're not pro-family. Yeah, um, truly, and, and, and ultimately, and let's just get the word nuclear family on the table here, then, because yeah. we're not just advocating 
nuclear family, whatever that word means. Talk about a stupid term. Well, I, I think I think nuclear was never about this is the only family that's real. So there's kind of two there's two issues here with the term nuclear family. One is the term was only meant to indicate this is how life goes on. Without this particular form of family, I see none of the rest of it will end up mattering because you will peter out. Yeah, you need replacement level. Right, exactly. The other the other thing here is I think some of it involves an exaltation of certain cultures, family forms over others. Mm-hmm. That makes so sense. If if like Southern Europe is much more invested in extended families living in the same like home than Northern Europe is historically going way, way, way back, way before America to say that the nuclear family focusing on the nuclear family was wrong, I think is making a cultural decision you don't have to make. I think, though, OK, I agree with you. But to go back to the word family where, where you first started us this hour, mm-hmm. you talked about whether it's a generation above or a yeah. generation below just the word generations in the family conversation. And as the definition of a family, that a family is not merely husband, wife, some children, but right. is two sets of parents and possibly quite a few little ones on the way down, down the road, hopefully and not yeah. possibly naturally. Yeah. Naturally. Well, I think the, the issue there is that when you're, if you're saying like, okay, well, yes, it's natural to have a father and a mother and children. That's natural. And I don't want to separate like being married from fertility any no, more no, no. than I would want to separate being a woman from like, I don't want know, to, separate, to from, separate it from generationalism. So the understanding again, that it's bigger than just me and my kids, it's actually me and my grandkids. It's me and my great grandkids. Yeah. It's me and my great grandparents. And that, sure. that's family, right? And I, that, I, I totally agree, but I think that economics, this is something that we're going to get into next week as well. Economics is not as natural and therefore not as n- tightly defined for everyone as biology is. Right. So then our current family structure is far more about the economic tax bracket, Correct. right? Yes. Than anything else. Yeah, yeah. yeah yes. I, I see that. And so, and so like a difference between societies would be if you have a colder climate with less available farmland... And the farmland has to be managed much more intensively. Norway is going to have a different household structure right. in two generations right. than Southern Italy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's when like, did we talk about this last week or was it somewhere else? This, these horse tribes where the, the young men just get on their horses and ride off for three months of the year and they, <laughs> right, they suck right, the yeah. blood of their horses because otherwise yeah. everyone starves. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, you don't have to do that here just because, although apparently it gives you nice teeth and all this according to the one guy, but... <laughs> So I did mention um, taxes a moment ago, and yeah. you know you have a, you have a bullet here about things that happen when no one is looking or can look, and I figure the institution of the uh, national income tax and its staying on indefinitely would be something that happened when no one was looking or could look, uh, by and large. So it, that's not what you're probably getting at, though. <laughs> no, it's not, but it's it, it could it could have been, um, and maybe we'll do that next week. The things that I'm talking about with things that happen when no one's looking or could look is that. Nature is showing you that if the natural form of human society, enduring human society, is family, then the place that life really happens is a place that is not subject to political debate, finally. Right? It's not a it's not a place that is about public life. And that maybe politics is not supposed to be a place where we debate what marriage is mm-hmm. or to whom children belong. Because without families, nobody exists. And I feel when I'm saying stuff like this, it feels 
asinine or stupid or obvious. But the reason that we have to say it is because it has become non-obvious. It has. But Skynet tells you that soon they'll all be being born out of bubbles in a big factory right. somewhere yeah. and it'll be right. taken care of. You might get to have one for a couple of years to help raise it a little bit. And then you'll you'll own nothing and you'll have no children yeah. and you'll eat the bugs, but you'll be happy. So, so and, and while I'm completely on your side, those who would <laughs> say that think what you just said was actually defeated by what I just said, that I just made a reasonable argument. So I, I, th I feel like we need to do a little more than just say, well, they're going to defeat their own purpose in 40 years uh, maybe we just need to say that they they are going to defeat their own purpose this is my point about when someone else attacks like when a system's going to cut off its own end before it gets there then to some extent your main goal is just keeping its water out of your well as much as you can it's not about trying to get its well to go away although you might got to build a wall you might got to move all that kind of thing but that's where i was going earlier does that does that yeah. follow now a bit more i yeah, and it it makes sense. I think that I think that there's kind of like two things that are worrisome about the regime even though in going contrary to nature to the extent that it does and 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 continues to do in an accelerating way, I'm not worried that it's going to survive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. I don't think it can, right? It's but just, it just can't. There, no, yeah. And I and I totally agree with that and I think that one of the effects of that is the enormous number of Americans that our regime is going to disappoint who have hoped and believed in what it says. Right. In two varying degrees and four varying reasons. Right. But they're still fighting the battle as if somehow we're going to get the Senate back and then we'll undo stuff later. And it'll, right. It'll all come back. Right. More in America. Yeah. Whereas but I what you see, I think, again, um, that I didn't finish it with, is that there, there will have to be a strongman that replaces the current regime. Right. When it collapses, some will have to hold together. And in some yeah. ways, you were saying a while ago, Biden's like the attempt at that. He just was, you know, the I forget the, the Russian parallel. Yeah, you know, I he's think, a weak, I strong think, man. OK, I think the problem here is that Biden Biden is Chernenko. So they want to look up Chernenko, go back and look up what what what's going on with him, because he's the senile, completely yeah. ineffectual. It's one. just like Can't two or three episodes ago. Go back two or three episodes. Listen a little bit. You'll find it. And he can't even stay on target. I mean, he he was talking about black on black crime. And it's like, no, that's a talking point from 20 years ago. You were allowed to say that. You can't say that anymore. So the issue the it is not just that the regime's adherents or beneficiaries will be disappointed and it will be very sad and messy and, 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 and maybe horrible. It's also that the regime cannot, it, it needs things like education and media because in not supporting natural families, it can only gain adherence through unnatural, forceful means, right? That is, that is that that a natural family. I don't have to. I don't have to scream at my children to love me or to want to know who I am. I'm their father, so of course they do. Now I can do that better or worse, but they will want to know who I am because I'm their. I, I shouldn't even have to qualify it. Biological father. I am their father. It's natural. They are your spawn. It is yeah. true. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It is on true. The, on the other hand, the regime neither supports a natural family in the tax structure, the legal structure, but it all in, in not doing that, it cannot create adherence other than through re-education. That is why things like education and power over bureaucratic rules and stuff are so important to it. Like, Yeah, it's almost like... Can I adjust that too? And and if I'm wrong, change it back. But like, it must become a religion then, since yes, it can't it, rely on the family. It must become a religion. 
Right. Because it, it doesn't rely, I mean, parallel to that is Christianity says that the problems with you are of a nature and extent as with the entirety of mankind that they have, it, that has to be revealed to you how bad they are and what the solution is. Right. Okay. What our government is doing is in a way unprecedented because governments are not traditionally instituted among men to solve problems like I'm a boy. I like girls. What <laughs> happens next? They're not there to give you definitions or redefinitions of those things. They're not built to solve problems like that. They're built to solve how do we build roads and how do we keep bad guys from running around all the time? That's what government can do. And by can, I mean, is actually capable of handling long-term. Government is not capable of handling long-term. Who am I? Why do I exist? What am I supposed to do when I wake up in the morning? So I like I like how you said can do the government can do those things. What the government always does do is take, and that's important. And this is yeah. where the divine right of kings comes from. Because when the guy comes and he says, "I have the divine right, and I'm taking it from you, and you can't stop him," guess what? He sure did. <laughs> yeah. And this is the prince Machiavelli, I think. Right. Uh, this is Nietzsche in a lot of ways, or at least it's where they're all bending. Now, you and I are advocating that this is not the only way man can be, even in this kind of age we're in, but it is the natural yeah. way man will be without an awareness of nature. <laughs> now, the more he detaches yeah. himself from his actual environment and creates a fantasy fairyland of his own imaginings, does everything he would want to do, he will build a trap for himself and his progeny, uh, which is his own madness, I think, in most cases. Yeah. I want to speak, and I know we're getting to the end here, so this is probably a bad idea to just kind of do this, but whatever, it's what occurred to me, is that I think that Nietzsche is seriously misunderstood when he talks about will and a lack of will because he wasn't talking about necessarily giving rise to, you know, what we really need in modern Europe is dictatorship. He was saying that in, a, in an age of mass democracy, under the conditions of mass media, which yeah, is really just yeah, newspapers, yeah. that what happens to man is that his will shrinks and shrivels and finally is extinguished. Yeah. That is that the average person begins to lack willpower in a way that the average person in the, you know, in the army of Achilles and Agamemnon does not lack willpower, mm -hmm. even though his name doesn't get into the Iliad. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, that's the kind of basic insight about will. And I think he was right about that mm. in the sense that if I am not allowed either to notice or to be educated in the ways of nature and then to live according to them as I perceive them. But instead, I have to wait on definitions and redefinitions and continual redefinitions from another authority. The basic thing at the heart of my life has to be a weak or non-existent will. Right, right. And don't miss that they used to say, you know, that willpower is just having a lack of spirit. So uh, don't miss that either. I mean, I'm not talking holy necessarily, yeah. but I am talking human. And there's something about the magical modern world with all its beautiful delicacies that drains the yeah. words out yeah. of your spirit, drains the and words out of your spirit. And something that you mentioned earlier is really crucial here that in destroying, especially the passing on of manhood mm -hmm. and any institution that would be, and you can notice this with all, I mean, girls sports is now threatened, but long before girls sports was threatened by transgender, transgenderism. Everything that was exclusively male became not exclusively male. Correct. This is another 
you know, effect of the sexual revolution. And the point of that is that you can't really go anywhere and have something that's exclusively male without making fun of it and then finally destroying it. And that's crucial, especially because when men are together in an unsupervised way, they will develop a collective political will, and that will be dangerous for whoever doesn't want that to happen. And I'd, I would suggest it would be based upon the strongest will among mm -hmm. them, generally. Yeah, right. Uh, this is, again, the natural hierarchy. So, all right. This, I think this connects to what you just said. And, and you know, we got, we got a few moments unless you got to run immediately. Um, no. I got into some trouble two weeks ago on my Saturday show with a listener <laughs> because I yeah. said something like this. I said that a woman cannot lead a man in song or lead men in song. Mm -hmm. The same way that a man can. Yeah. That was it. That's all I said. I was called a misogynist for that. Right. Misogynist, right? Yeah. Wait, 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 wait. The same way. So if you just listen with a tape recorder, you'll hear when she sings, it's not the same, right? Like, like we're, we're at the point though, where our need to like protect against the chauvinism is so extreme that we cannot acknowledge that a man and woman, and this, these are Christians in a conversation about liturgy conservative yeah. Christians still are going to argue about man and woman with each other, even existing, right. even existing. Yeah. yeah. Well, because, and that's why we started with the concept of categorical thinking being good and wholesome yeah. as a way to think, because if I have a category, I can accommodate exceptions every once in a blue moon, but the category is going to set me up to understand life much better than trying to evaluate all of life, including my own life, on an ongoing, self-critical, just eviscerated basis and thinking, okay, I can't think categorically. So do I feel like a man today? Do I feel strong? Do I just want to be loved and held? You know, I can't, like not thinking categorically actually shrivels thought in certain areas. And Christians are not at all immune from this. In fact, it's usually in the areas that we don't talk about, such as, what is a man and what is a woman and how are they fundamentally different? It's in those specific areas that we generally have changed the most. And a lot of times we're not even aware of it. And we will concoct excuses for why something that really has only been going on for 40 years in the scope of the entirety of the history of Christianity, 40 years in the United States is normal and natural and scriptural. And part of the reason we're doing that is because even if we understand that categorically some things are off limits, talking about humans or human sexuality or marriage, there are other parts of that, if the pastor never talks about it, nobody ever talks about it, that are going to go unexamined. And in which case, we're just going to go along with whatever subtly very categorical, but apparently non-categorical thinking the culture and the media have provided to us. So I want to also make sure that we are not given the illusion that if you're miserable— and you go study nature, all your misery will go away. Although we are suggesting that if you're miserable and you go study nature, you'll probably be less miserable. So, and, and there's a real <laughs> yeah. difference between those two things, right? right. But yeah. we're, not, right. We're, not, we're not advocating a practice of full and total spiritual enlightenment or any reason to go off medication or anything like that. But we are saying, though, that the modern gear churning and spirit-sucking age we live in, without categories, without meaning, and with a whole lot of tyranny shouting at you all the time, has the tendency to whittle down your spirit quite a bit, and that maybe not listening to them and just sitting under a tree 
we'll let you breathe some fresh oxygen and well, that would be like the definition of spirit too in different ways. I get old weird like that though. It's all connected. The breath and the oxygen, the trees, blah, blah. The point being you're outside, you're breathing, you're going to feel better, right? Um, yeah. And so I, I just want to make sure we're not, as, as Christians here, we're not talking soteriology. Uh, we're not talking kingdom of God. For anybody who'll be listening to these things, what we really are talking here is first article and uh, the destruction of it now, does that mean that it doesn't have implications for those other things? Right? No, it does for us. But right. I'm not expecting to have a perfect life, but I am expecting to be able to eke out a more sane life than the one I had last year. I do expect that of this world. And even if it means I realize they're all insane and killing me, <laughs> uh, I'm not going to live in the whitewash and the and the gas uh, gaslighting again. Yeah. Right? I mean, the thing to ask yourself is just rattle off just some some words, some English words, man, woman, health. Hmm. And if you think that those things have any real basis in nature, then you will begin to attend to not the definitions and redefinitions and debates about those things, but what nature tells you about those things. And also if you're a Christian, what the Bible tells you about those things. And you'll learn that when you act according to them, life will go better not that it will be free of suffering. That's that's one of the unnatural lies that you're constantly told. If you just do this, you'll get rid of suffering. That's that's how the opioid crisis happened. Yeah, You won't yeah. have to experience pain anymore. But your life will go better because it will be in closer accord with what you were made to be. And that will actually be more fulfilling in ways that are understandable or some of which you won't you haven't ever experienced yet that will be better for you and for everybody around you than to constantly go against nature, which is what, understand, our regime will constantly provide you because unnatural solutions are both solutions that can be monetized and they are solutions in which you will remain dependent upon someone else for remaining a woman when biologically you should be a man or remaining mentally healthy by continuing to go to this thing for the rest of your life, whatever right, being right. on this for the rest of your life, whatever it is that you're being given, that solution, which someone had to create for you, will keep you both dependent and also will enable you to be subject to definition and redefinition by someone else. Mm -hmm. Which means again, though, so we talked about this earlier, I maybe mean, it's a good place to close in on, for your own family, beginning to take your own definitions captive and refusing yeah. to let them be redefined. Right. Yeah, because if you hold on to those things, then you have something that the regime cannot provide you because it itself is sterile, as we talked about. Ideologically, it's sterile. Basically, nobody believes in it. Who sincerely believes in it? Do, it, do the people who carry it out sincerely believe in it? Do they sincerely believe in free speech? I mean, none. Of, it, it's a sterile regime. And so it can produce nothing. It's not built for a favorite green word. And I like the word too, sustainability. The natural family is sustainable. And so you will actually have a legacy. And that will prove to be a lot more worthwhile than any of the other things that the, that the regime tells you are important. And the first time that I realized this was the first couple of times I was there when someone died, not in my own family, but but as a pastor attending to people dying. And you notice that regardless of how, and you know, you're dealing with a generation at this point, if you're a pastor, generally these generations got to live in a 
it appears to me an incredibly normal time. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Truth. So they're not dealing with, okay, from the ages of, you know, 26 to 31, I was trying to be a woman or something. So we'll see what happens later. But no one ever said anything about amounts of money that they made or what kind of jobs they held. Or there are a lot of, it's amazing how much of a life gets swept aside in the clarity of death. Hmm. Besides their faith, the natural non-Christian, not specifically Christian element of life that they all care about is family right? and who's there and whether or not the breaches were ever mended, whether or not certain things were said that needed to be said before they left. That's what actually seemed to matter because it was natural because they continued thinking about people who had died 25 years ago. That's what actually mattered. And so in talking about family and then next week going into what I think is one of the primary things that we have traded for family, but also that inhibits family and family formation, which is money. In talking about family, we're really talking about really all that's going to matter to hardly anybody at the end of the day. Because it's natural, because it's non-negotiable, because it's a circumstance of human existence. And so that's, that's the reason to look at these hard definitions that both nature and scripture provide about the family and to take a hard look at how actually am I fitting into those things? Because in fitting into them, I'm actually pursuing a way that's actually going to be a lot more beneficial to me and my family long term than trying to buck yeah. against those things forever and then seeing how it works out. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And just want to reiterate the formation of a personal canon, a family canon of both uh, well, a dictionary, one you trust that isn't going to change, has a date on it from like 1942 or something, and you can you, know, you can use it. Um, and and then you know what you read. I was I was looking at the library books my kids are going to return today, and thinking about how they've kind of been free to read juvenile fiction more or less with some, mm -hmm. you know, some, some limitations, but how like, that's just going to be less and less a reality. It's going to become right. more and more yeah. some other thing. And so I said, Hey, make sure you guys figure out what your favorite ones are so we can buy them. We got to build a library here where you can reread the good books, you know, 30 years from now that you like now. Right. Cause I mean, <laughs> I mentioned book books disappearing and, uh, and Huckleberry Finn and how I learned it was disappearing in I don't know, the nineties again from, from various places in the country. <laughs> and so, you know, if they're doing all that back then, Goodness gracious. Yep. Uh, now it's, it's on the way. So Dr. Adam Kuntz, um, one more thing about the economy stuff last week. Are you going to be talking then about say household income and uh, single versus double income yeah. or. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. We're uh, going to talk about, we're going to talk about economics as the law of the household and then move outward from there. But I dropped a little hint in saying that contrary to how people think of it, biology is non-negotiable economics is a lot squishier, but it gets taught kind of the other way around. Biology is very squishy. You can change whatever you want. And econ is just a set of laws. And that's just the way the world works. And yeah, my body is my body. There's always more money. <laughs> we'll catch you guys next week.